Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever. Every hire is critical. Indeed is the number one job site in the world. And now you can get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 30th. We had a big sell-off in the U.S. stock markets today, although a 300-point rally off the lows prevented the uh, stock market losses from being even worse. The Dow was down 650 points. At its low, it was down about 950 points. That's a decline of about 2.3%. S&P not quite as bad, only down 1.86% because the composite down 1.64%. Remember, what's holding up the market are these COVID stay-at-home stocks that everybody keeps buying because the catalyst for this morning's sell-off had to do with renewed fears, A, that we wouldn't be getting a stimulus anytime soon or at least before the election, and also that COVID is picking up around the world in the U.S. and in Europe, delaying uh, the so-called uh, restart, reboot of the economy, uh, the uh, second leg of the V, uh, looking a bit emaciated. And so people now have more reasons to sell the recovery stocks, right? The stocks that have to do with the economy coming back and piling into the stocks that are profiting from everybody staying at home and, and not going out and not working. The question is, how long can this stay-at-home trade 
continue because all of these stocks are already way overvalued anyway. So even if the economy uh, does continue in shutdown mode, at some point, these stocks have got to go down. And of course, if all of the people who are staying at home and shopping never go back to work and never actually have a job and the only money they have to spend is the money the Fed creates out of thin air, eventually the dollar is going to collapse and their real purchasing power is going to go down along with it. And a lot of these stocks are going to crash because they're not going to have any real revenue because their customers are going to be broke and they're not going to be able to sell these higher cost products because you know inflation will drive up the cost of producing all these products that their consumers really can't afford to buy. But, you know, ironically, one of the reasons that the market sold off was news that the Democrat wave, the blue wave that people have been factoring into the market may not crest the way people have been thinking. I mean, if you look at the polls now, Donald Trump, uh, since my last podcast, we did have another presidential debate. This one, I think Trump uh, came across a lot better Then in the last debate, now again, it wasn't a knockout. Biden was still standing at the end of the debate. And so from that respect, maybe it's a win for Biden uh, because it wasn't a knockout by Trump. But I do think that together with some of the ads that Trump has been running, I think the race has tightened a bit. I still believe that Donald Trump is going to lose. Uh, I'm not hoping that he loses, but I think that's going to happen. Uh, I think that the Republicans have a better chance of keeping the Senate. And I think that's what's worrying the markets, at least based on this nonsense that everybody uh, started to accept over the last couple of weeks, that gridlock is the worst case scenario, that what we really need is the same party to control Congress and the White House, although the House is not in play at all. So there's no way the Republicans are going to have complete control of Congress. The only way that will happen is if the Democrats take the White House and the Senate, which personally I think is the most likely outcome. But the markets convince themselves that that's the best outcome for stocks. Because despite the fact that there will be higher taxes with that outcome on rich and on corporations, that is the outcome that guarantees the biggest increase in government spending and therefore the most monetary stimulus to finance that fiscal stimulus. And so that's why the market is hoping for a blue wave is because they think they can ride that wave to profits in the stock market, despite the fact that it's going to come crashing down on the U.S. economy. But their second most optimistic scenario would be if Trump wins and the Republicans keep the Senate. There again, there is no gridlock. But if we end up with divided government, clearly the worst possible way that we would have divided if your goal is maximum government stimulus, maximum money printing. If that's what you're looking for and that's what the stock market is looking for, their nightmare scenario is that Biden wins the White House, but that the Republicans keep the Senate. And I would agree from the perspective that that outcome will likely lead to less stimulus than if Trump wins but the Democrats have the House and the Senate because Trump has already shown he's willing to compromise even with Republicans in order to make government bigger. So I think he would certainly do that with a Democratic Congress. Now, I know there are people that are holding out hope that Donald Trump in his second term will finally be the guy that drains the swamp. 
that he's finally going to tackle government spending, the deficits, and all the things that he didn't have the guts to do in his first term, that he's going to do that in his second term. And obviously, sure, you know, once you're in your second term, you can't have a third term. And so maybe that's the term that you actually do what's good for the country. You don't just do what helps you get a second term. So it is possible that Donald Trump was actually saving all the good stuff for a second term. But, you know, I think that if Donald Trump really wanted to do anything good, he wouldn't have gambled on a second term. He would have done it all in the first couple of years of his first term. So I am not thinking that the real uh, Trump is going to come out, you know, from behind a curtain uh, in uh, his second term. I think Trump has already shown his true colors. And so my guess is that it's going to be more of the same in the second term. And if the Democrats have the Senate, it'll just be Trump on steroids. I think the amount of money printing and deficit spending will be even greater in the second term than they were in the first. And of course, the economy is going to be much worse. And so the political uh, push for more stimulus will be stronger, as will the push from Wall Street to do more stimulus. So if you're holding out hope that the real Donald Trump, who promised to drain the swamp and make America great again, is going to show up in his second term, even though he is MIA in his first, I wouldn't hold my breath. But I do think that it will be worse if the Democrats have both the Senate and, and the White House. But if we end up with divided government with the Republicans holding the Senate, I think Republicans in the Senate will actually put more pressure on President Biden than they would have on a President Trump. They're more likely to cooperate with Trump to give him the spending he wants, but they are more likely for their own political reasons, for their own base, so they don't get primaried and and lose. They will finally find some religion and they will push back against Biden's stimulus. And so that will slow down the amount of stimulus, make sure that the stimulus is not as large as would be the case if there were no Republicans pushing back in the U.S. Senate. And so that's what uh, Wall Street doesn't like. They don't like the possibility that maybe the Republicans won't lose the Senate. Because I think when you're looking at some of those races where it looked like Republican incumbents were going down, now those races are more of a dead heat. And that may be why the market uh, is weakening. But again, I don't buy any of this nonsense. I think Wall Street is just trying to convince everybody that it's okay if Trump loses. In fact, it's more than okay. It's actually better, right? It's good for the market if Trump wins, but it's even better if Trump loses because then we get even more stimulus. So who cares about higher taxes? Don't worry about that. You know, we're going to offset the negatives of higher taxes with the positives of more stimulus. But remember, more stimulus comes with bigger government. Bigger government is not a recipe for economic success, and it's not a recipe for stock market success. And I do think that if Biden wins, uh, that any Biden-related rally will be very short-lived. I do believe, just like the Trump sell-off was short-lived, when investors have a chance to really think about what a Biden win means, uh, just like when they actually had a chance to think about what a Trump win was supposed to mean, the Trump win was lower taxes and less regulations. That is good for the market. Biden win means higher taxes, more regulation. That's bad for the market. And the valuations are even higher now than they were when Trump won. So stocks are far more overvalued today than they were four years ago. So I think the sell-off could be even more pronounced. And 
you know, initially, you know, we'll get that real bounce of a rally, but we may not even get it. I mean, people might just come out selling as soon as they know the results. The problem is we may not even know the results on election night. We may have to wait a while before they count all of the absentee ballots, those mail-in ballots, and then maybe the results there will be contested. So who knows? But I do think somewhere along the way, we got a small taste today of the downside that's coming in the U.S. stock market. And my you know, belief that Donald Trump is not going to be reelected. I mean, I've had this opinion since the beginning. I mean, since he was first elected. And the reason I was saying this is because I knew that Trump was not going to be able to deliver on his promises and that when he stood for reelection, he would not have made America great again. He would not have drained the swamp. And so I didn't think that message would resonate a second time. And, you know, when a lot of people were trying to compare Donald Trump to Ronald Reagan, saying, hey, he's going to be another Ronald Reagan, I said they were one off. Go back to the beginning. I said Trump was going to be another Jimmy Carter. And I think that's what's going to happen, except I said he was Jimmy Carter in reverse, right? That he was the anti-Carter or just the Republican version of Jimmy Carter. And that's because Jimmy Carter came to office between two Republican administrations, basically the Nixon-Ford administrations and the Reagan administrations. And the economy was very bad under Nixon and, and Ford, but the roots of the problems really started with Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democrat who preceded Nixon and, and Ford. But based on the scandals of Watergate and the inflation that had picked up, and then, of course, Ford had parted Nixon, and so that bothered a lot of people. The public wanted a change. They wanted something different. They really wanted to drain the swamp at that time, and that's where they got Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was an outsider. Yes, he had been in government, but he was governor of Georgia. I mean, he wasn't in Washington, D.C. He was marketed as a peanut farmer, right? He was the regular guy that was going to go to Washington and clean house because of all the corruption. And of course, the economy was terrible. And so Jimmy Carter won. But the reason he was a one-termer is because he didn't really do anything to change the dynamic that he inherited. He continued the Keynesian uh, fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, so the inflation got worse. The economy got worse. And so the public then did an about face. They got rid of Carter and they went back to the Republicans, except they didn't go back to the type of Republican Party they had before, which was really the big government Rockefeller Republicans. They took a chance on Barry Goldwater type Republican. They had rejected Barry Goldwater, at least the voters had. Uh, the Republican Party embraced him uh, initially, uh, but the voters took Linda Johnson over Goldwater. But by 1980, the economy was so bad, the public was really in a mood for a new type of Republican, a Goldwater Republican reborn in the name of Ronald Reagan, who of course had been a big supporter of Barry Goldwater at the time. And so we went from a big government Republican to a smaller government Republican, a new type of Republican economy to revitalize the economy. And voters who had rejected Gerald Ford embraced Ronald Reagan. And they voted for him. And it worked. 
and Reagan was reelected. And he had, you know, he had a good eight years with the exception of the fact that he never tackled the increases in government spending. And of course, if Reagan couldn't even do it, why did anybody expect that Donald Trump would? Why would he succeed where Reagan failed? In fact, he didn't even try. I think Reagan at least tried, but eventually, you know, he gave up trying uh, and focused on, on, on other things. But I think uh, Trump never even tried uh, to cut government spending. He was just, you know, in favor of it all along. But the reason that I thought, and I still think, that Donald Trump is Carter in reverse is because Donald Trump came in after you had two terms of Barack Obama. And despite all the hoopla from Wall Street, the economy really was bad. And Trump knew that. And he spoke a language that resonated with a lot of the forgotten voters who knew that the real economy wasn't anywhere near as good as what the government was pretending is what what Wall Street was claiming. And he promised to come in and drain the swamp, right? Make America great again. He wasn't a Washington insider. You know, he didn't have any government experience, but, you know, he was he was a, a businessman like Jimmy Carter was a farmer. Right. So he was going to come in and, and make things better. The problem is he did exactly what Carter did. He just continued the failed policies that he inherited. He didn't do anything to change the dynamic. And so now the economy is worse at the end of Trump's term than it was at the beginning. And now I think the voters are going to do exactly what they did following Carter. They're going to go back to the Democrats only instead of going back to a more conservative Republican, which is what we did with Reagan, we're going to go back to a more liberal Democrat. We're going to go back to a socialist type Democrat in Biden. And even if Biden himself uh, did not campaign that way, he's going to govern that way. He has already been pushed that way by the Democratic Party. And who knows who's really going to be pulling the strings in the Biden administration, because whoever it is, is basically the next Ronald Reagan, you know, in reverse, the antithesis of Reagan, you know, the evil Reagan, who is going to be growing government. I don't think Biden can make it himself for two terms. Uh, So I think somebody else will end up uh, completing his term and maybe hopefully not getting reelected. But that would be the worst possible scenario. So hopefully the comparison uh, ends with Trump and we don't have the Democratic equivalent of a socialist Ronald Reagan uh, that governs for for eight years. But that's the comparison that I thought was coming. And so far, it looks pretty accurate. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And before I forget, too, I want to remind everybody to register for The Money Show. Go online, moneyshow.com. I'm doing another virtual money show. I have two talks. I have a my main talk and I have a panel. By the way, uh, on one of my paddles, Stephen Moore is going to be on there. And it's always a, a good argument between me and my friend Stephen Moore because, you know, we were pretty much very simpatico until he became a member of the Trump administration or quasi member. Uh, and, uh, you know, so uh, he's been a big cheerleader uh, for Donald Trump. I know he has some buddies like Larry Kudlow who are, you know, in the Trump administration. Kudlow playing a key role in that administration. 
So ever since then, we've kind of parted ways because he's been a cheerleader for Trump, where I've been pointing out uh, the failings of Trump. So he still pretends that the Trump economy was great. Uh, and so we'll be talking about that on the panel. So make sure it's a free conference. So it doesn't cost anything, but you do have to register uh, to hear it live. You know, maybe they'll put up uh, the, the panels later on. They probably will. But hey, just register and check them out live just in case. You never know when, they, when they'll post them, if they'll post them. But, you know, I was listening to a lot of people talking about the economy today because they're upset that the stimulus isn't coming. You know, it's tied up. And the conventional wisdom is that this is politics, that the government should not be playing politics right now with the stimulus. They should just deliver the stimulus because that's what everybody needs, right? They're saying that consumers need the stimulus, right? They need help. Businesses need stimulus. They need some help. And just because there's a need, the government should come in and and fulfill that need. But I wish there would be some people in Washington that would point out that that is not the job of government. If somebody has a problem, they have to solve that problem. They can't look to government. Government is not a crutch to solve problems because if people need resources, Right? which is what people need, right? They're lacking in resources. They don't have their incomes, right? They're not, they don't have money coming in because they're not working. Uh, so they, they need resources. The government doesn't have any. The government is not sitting on a pile of real money uh, to give out to people when, they're, when they need it. The government only can give to some people what it takes from other people. So to the extent that the government helps somebody, it does that by taking money away from somebody else. So what the government is doing is forcing the people who don't need help to help the people who do. Now, of course, a lot of these government programs, though, like the PPP was a perfectly good example. A lot of people who didn't need help got it anyway. That is the problem with government, because whenever you have all this government uh, re, you know, reallocation of resources, even if some people are helped at other people's expense, overall, the entire economy is left worse off. So even if you're going to buy the idea that the government should help people who need help by taking money from other people who don't, the overall effect on the economy is going to be a negative. So the whole economy is going to be worse off, even if some people are better off as a result of, of what the government does. But they never talk about it in those terms. And of course, if there is going to be government help, it should be on a state level. It should not be on a federal level. It should be state by state. It should be state governments that are surveying the landscape. And if they think there's an emergency and there are certain citizens of their states that need help, well, they should figure out which citizens in their states can afford to supply that help. Whose taxes have to go up so that other people can get a check? But everybody thinks that all we have to do is print money, right? If the Fed just creates money and everybody can have what they need and it doesn't cost anybody anything. And, you know, as long as the world is dumb enough to allow this to continue, they're going to be right which is why I think the world is going to wake up and cut us off. That's why we're headed for this currency crisis, because we are going to do this. We're going to take advantage of the world until the world wises up and decides that it doesn't want to be taken advantage of anymore. But the other point that nobody seems to make is why is everybody you know, so desperate for help? Why does everybody need all this money? Why can't they take care of themselves? Now they want to say, well, you know, because it's the virus, the virus just came out of left field. I know it came out of left field. So did World War II. 
So did a lot of bad things. But we, we, we lived through it. People didn't need help from the government because people were financially solvent. People had savings. People were prepared. The fact that we weren't prepared at all, that's the problem no one wants to talk about. Why is it that Americans are loaded up with debt and living paycheck to paycheck? Why is the same thing true uh, for so many businesses? Why are the credit losses now going to be horrific? You know, you're talking about a lot of these companies now going bankrupt and the lenders, the unsecured lenders, losing everything. They're not going to get 50 cents on the dollar. They're going to get no cents on the dollar. Why? Because the Federal Reserve kept interest rates so low for so long that people and companies were able to borrow far more money than they ever would have been able to borrow during a normal lending environment. So it's because of the Federal Reserve that the society, that the country is so levered up. That's why we're so vulnerable. That's why everybody needs so much help because the government crippled everybody uh, with its monetary policies and also the fiscal policies. And, and, and so now, of course, we can't walk and we think, oh, so we need more government crutches so we can lip around without realizing that all that is doing is exacerbating the problems that already exist. I mean, we've got to, you know, fess up to reality and stop trying to sober up by drinking more alcohol. But it is a very sobering uh, uh, understanding to have to do that, right? For reality uh, to be dealt with and stop pretending that there's a government cure for what ails us. We're sick because we overdosed on, on government cures. So nobody has these conversations. Yeah, people need money, companies need money. And so we have to stop playing politics and give them the money. Playing politics is giving them the money. The reason that everybody needs the money is because we played politics in the past by making them so dependent on that money. By trying to delay and mitigate every single recession, now we're in a depression. Had we allowed market forces to operate, we would have had a much healthier economy going into COVID-19 instead of a bubble. And the problem with bubbles is sooner or later, they always find a pin. So you can't keep talking about the pin. You can't be saying it's all COVID and excuse the bubble that the pin pricked. Because if it wasn't this pin, it would have been another pin. So you can't let the Federal Reserve off the hook. You can't let Congress off the hook and say, hey, it's not their fault because they couldn't have predicted COVID. Maybe, maybe not, but they could have predicted that something bad would happen. I mean, just Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And so if COVID didn't go wrong, something would have. It's just that we wouldn't prepare for anything, whether it was COVID or anything else. So what's happening now was destined to happen. It was unavoidable. But what's also unavoidable is what's going to happen next, because what's going to happen next is going to be much worse than what's already happened, because we've been able to mitigate the downturn so far because we've been able to keep printing dollars and we've been able to spend those dollars because the value hasn't collapsed. When this kicks into a whole new gear is when the dollar collapses. And then it doesn't do you any good that the government printed up some dollars and gave them to you because there's very little you can buy with them. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people and it gets them fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you total control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only have to pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time and there's no long-term contracts. 
Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get the job done for you, and it's going to make sure that you can hire the people that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering my listeners a $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. This is their best offer available anywhere. So go right now to Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 30th. But the one good thing that has come from the Trump administration, and again, I gave Trump credit for this early on, and I've been saying that potentially this could be uh, the best legacy uh, from his term, is his Supreme Court nominations. He will now, I think later tonight, Amy uh, Coney Barrett is going to be confirmed by the Senate and she will be on the Supreme Court. And that means that in four years as president, Trump would have been able to nominate three justices successfully to the Supreme Court. And that seems like a a pretty large number for a one term. The only problem is will the Democrats be able to successfully pack the Supreme Court, which is why I think we really want to make sure, not that we have any any say in the matter, but really want to hope for the Republicans to maintain control of the U.S. Senate. Uh, So if you are living in a battleground state, if you think your incumbent Republican is in trouble, make sure and vote for him. Because the most important thing that we could do is to prevent the Democrats from getting the Senate, because that is the best way to prevent them from packing the Supreme Court, eliminating the filibuster, because a lot of what the Democrats want to do, in fact, all of what the Democrats want to do is unconstitutional. And so what my hope is the current Supreme Court, thanks to the new nominations made by President Trump, Maybe a lot of what's on the Democratic agenda, even if it can get through Congress with a Republican Senate, because you get a few uh, uh, Republican defectors uh, that go along with it, that the Supreme Court will strike it down. Now, I'm not you know, 100% certain that they will. In fact, I think it's more likely that they won't. Uh, hoping for relief from the Supreme Court seems like a, a shot in the dark because they've let us down so badly in the past. So, you know, the definition of insanity would be Uh, expecting a different result, knowing what the results have always been. So I'm not that optimistic that even the Supreme Court in its current configuration, plus uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, even with that Supreme Court, will they protect us from more uh, usurpation of power on the part of the federal government? We'll see. But at least we have something to hope for. And I do believe that the nominations that were made by Trump are much better than the nominations that would have been made by Hillary Clinton had she won. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by kind of updating everybody on what's going on with me and the allegations uh, that were raised in the 60 Minutes uh, piece and the article in The Age, the companion paper, the same guys, same reporter uh, put out this stuff. And there's been a lot of other articles, too, now that they keep coming out. But as I said in my last podcast, I was preparing a video response 
to these false allegations. And if you haven't already watched that response, I would encourage you to do so now. There's over 80,000 people that have watched it, but that still is small compared to the number of people who have seen that 60 Minutes story. Even if you look at the 60 Minutes YouTube channel where they have um, posted that broadcast, there's over 225,000 views there. Now, I'm not sure how many people in Australia watch 60 Minutes Live, uh, but we've got another almost quarter of a million now that have seen it on YouTube. And of course, there it's reaching a broader audience, not just the people in Australia who watch Channel 9, but uh, people all around the world that have access to, uh, to YouTube. Interesting thing, though, if you look at the video, there are 2.9 thousand thumbs up, at least as I'm recording it. I have no idea what the numbers will be by the time anybody who is listening to this podcast goes and, and checks it out. But there are 2.9 thousand thumbs up and 4.2 thousand thumbs down. So you have the number of people that dislike the video far exceeding the number of people who like the video. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how bad this video is. Because you know, there are a lot of liberals that love it probably, right? That were there like giving it thumbs up. But despite that, there were a lot of people that saw through the charade and, and gave it the thumbs down. Now, I didn't actually encourage anybody to go over there and, and give it a thumbs down. So I'm not sure how much impact I had, but probably there are some people who watched my video response and then went over because they had never actually seen uh, the 60 Minutes video. And they probably I probably helped promote the video by calling attention to how bad it was. But probably some of the people who you know watched my YouTube response then went and checked out the actual complete video because I only showed little clips of it and so maybe people wanted to see for themselves and then they probably uh, started to give it some thumbs down but there were a lot of thumbs down on there even before I did my video of course you know they didn't outnumber the thumbs up but maybe it was two to one thumbs up to thumbs down but that's still rare that you would have that many thumbs down on the video I mean most people don't bother to put a thumbs down on the video they're, they're more likely to put a thumbs up if they like it than put a thumbs down. So this gives you an idea of how bad it is. Now you can contrast that to my video, my video response. You can look at the ratio of thumbs ups to thumbs down. So as I said, I've got just under 86,000 views on mine. I have 7.7 thousand thumbs up, 7,700 thumbs up and only 132 thumbs down. I mean, that is a tiny number of thumbs down uh, relative to the number of thumbs up. Now, I know that some of the Peter Schiff haters, to the extent that they got this far in my podcast, well, they'll probably go over there and give me a thumbs down just to, uh, you know, just to, you know, run it up a bit. But they're probably already there, right? There are a handful of people that sit by their uh, computer and, it, and they've subscribed to my YouTube channel. And then the minute I send out a video, they're already thumbs downing it before they've even uh, listened to it. Probably they don't even listen to it. They just want to thumbs down it because they like uh, to do that because they don't like me. And so they want to express the fact that they don't like me by giving any video I post an immediate thumbs down. But even including all those guys, I only have 132 thumbs down and 7,700 thumbs up, you know, on 86,000 uh, views. So that shows you, but this is, my video is good. It's actually long. And there's actually some stuff that I didn't even include in there. I could have put a lot more stuff in there, but it was already, you know, over 90 minutes. Uh, so I think I do a very good job of really exposing the lies and the fraud 
and the agenda behind this hit job that they did on me. So make sure and watch it and then share it. You know, I, I mean, I know I'm calling attention to it by asking you to share my side of the story, but you know, I'm really hoping to get this video to get bigger and then maybe have more legs in Australia. But again, I, I have to convince more people that, that I'm an honest guy. It's not just Australia. And, you know, there's an old kid's game of, uh, you know, telephone, right? Somebody says something to somebody and then that person tells somebody else and then that person tells somebody else and the story goes down the line and then the final person gets the story and then you compare what the final person heard to the story that the first person told. And generally, uh, you know, the whole thing changes a lot because every time somebody else tells the story, they retell the story, they change it slightly. So by the time the last person hears it, it could be completely different than the original story. Well, that's kind of even what's going on with this article, because now I'm reading stories that basically say that my bank, Europe Pacific Bank, has ties to organized crime, right? So now it's a mob bank, right? It's, you know, we're working with organized crime. I mean, this is so far from the truth. I mean, the bank is small. I mean, if organized crime is using my bank, then, you know, that probably means that, you know, organized crime isn't a threat anymore because my bank is small. I mean, the 60 Minutes piece made a big deal about the fact that I am the largest offshore bank in Puerto Rico. Yes, because most of them are tiny. I mean, mine is still tiny too. I'm just not as tiny as these other banks. And like a lot of these banks just got started. And again, they got started because of the tax benefits that they provide to the owners of the banks, not to the customers, not the depositors. Puerto Rico is not a banking tax haven for any depositors. It is a tax haven for people that operate businesses in Puerto Rico, Americans who operate businesses, and those would include banks. And so that's one of the reasons that a lot of banks have opened up in Puerto Rico, as well as a lot of other companies that have opened up in Puerto Rico. It's just that the banks uh, are the ones that are getting the scrutiny. But my bank is relatively small. In fact, you know, they're trying to blame my bank for all the problems in Australia. I'm reading articles now. Again, they talk about this Operation Atlantis, right? That is the code name for this uh, huge five-nation effort to bust the biggest tax evasion, money laundering operation in world history, right? This is this huge uh, money laundering tax evasion investigation. And I'm reading these articles and they all seem to say now that Europe Pacific Bank is at the center of the investigation, right? That we are the focal point, that this whole investigation, this massive multinational investigation is focused on this little bank in Puerto Rico. In fact, I asked uh, the bank to give me an idea of the total value of all of the accounts from Australia, right? Because that's Australia is the one that's saying we're responsible for all this tax evasion going on in Australia. And Australia is losing out on all this money because so many Australians are banking at Euro Pacific Bank, right? And we need all this new regulation now. We need to regulate the lawyers, uh, the real estate agents, the accountants. We need more regulations on the bank because all this tax revenue is being lost to Euro Pacific Bank. Well, if you added up all of the Australian depositors, and I haven't actually done it, and they didn't do it either, but they kind of guessed. And they said that they would guess that the total value of all the Australian accounts is less than 1 million Australian dollars. 1 million Australian dollars. That's it. 
Now, if you assume that 100% of those balances is unreported income, right? Every single Australian customer we have is a tax cheat, right? Despite our state-of-the-art compliance efforts, right? Uh, we have excellent compliance. I mean, I highlighted that in my my YouTube response. So watch that, right? Because I already talked about that there. But even if despite our extensive compliance and all the accounts we turn down and all the accounts we close, somehow every single one of our Australian customers to the, to the person is a tax cheat and 100% of their account balance represents unreported income that would have otherwise been subject to tax, but they didn't declare it. Instead, they stashed it in my bank. That's a million dollars of unreported income in total, right? Over all the years, they've had the accounts, not every year, because that's the money they've got there. So if that's all the money that has escaped uh, Australian taxation, well, how much money is that? 300,000 Australian dollars? Is that it? Which is what, about 200 grand, quarter million dollars US, if that? That's how much money? I mean, how much money has the Australian government already spent on this investigation? I'm sure it's way more than that. I mean, how can we be the center of this investigation? The investigation is so big, involves so many governments, is so expensive, yet it's all for this tiny little bank that barely has any customers, that barely has any transactions. I mean, in the scheme of things, I mean, my bank has a few hundred million in total worldwide deposits. How much is that? That is nothing in the scheme of things. How can there be this big investigation totally on my bank? You know, how much is the Australian government not just spending on this investigation, but if they end up passing this sweeping new AML regulation, which now everybody is pushing for because so many uh, Australians were working with my bank, lawyers and other banks and the Perth Mint, right? Because these people were working with my bank and supposedly it was costing the Australian government so much money, right? Because of this, we need all these new regulations. How much is it going to cost the Australian economy to now comply with all these regulations? And I'm not just talking about the actual money that they have to spend to comply with the regulations because just that is going to be many, many times what they're losing in tax revenue, assuming that every Australian who banked with me evaded their taxes with 100% of their deposits, right? It's going to cost the Australian economy millions of dollars, maybe tens of millions of dollars annually to comply with these regulations. But the real cost is not just the money that you spend complying with the regulations, but the economic output that is lost as a result of the regulations. You make the economy less efficient, less productive, and those are real losses. For what reason? Because of Euro-Pacific Bank? Because of this tiny bank with a few hundred Australian customers? That's it? And most of these customers probably are not evading their taxes at all. Because most of the Australians who wanted to use my bank for that purpose, if they applied for an account, they probably didn't get one. And if they got one, it was probably closed, just like the, you know, the individuals they mentioned. Both of the individuals that they mentioned who had accounts with my bank had their accounts closed by my bank before they did any significant volume in transactions. That guy that got convicted for the biggest scam in Australian history, a $100 million tax fraud, 
I point out on my video, that guy only did not even $75,000 worth of transactions before we shut his account down because it looked suspicious. And it was years before he actually pled guilty to a crime. I mean, we, we ferreted this guy out long before the authorities in Australia had any idea what was going on. My bank did exactly what it was supposed to do, right? And, and, and it did it. You know, again, I, you know, I talk on my video, I'm not happy about these laws. I wish they didn't exist. I wish I didn't have to comply with them, but they do exist and I do comply with them. Um, so watch the video, spread the news. Um, I need to salvage my reputation here. Not so much again for my, my customers. I think the vast majority of my customers see through this. In fact, we haven't had one customer to my knowledge uh, that has contacted me through any of my companies to say that they were disappointed, uh, in me or believe the allegations or don't want to do business with me. Uh, but we have been contacted by partners that we use in the financial services industry. That is the risk. People are now worried about the optics of associating with Europe Pacific Capital or with Peter Schiff rather, not Europe Pacific, with Peter Schiff specifically, because I am the target of all of that negative publicity. I've got ties to organized crime right? I'm, I'm laundering money, right? I'm, I'm evading taxes. I'm working with drug dealers, right? These are all the false allegations that are out there. Well, if you're running your own financial institution, whether it's a broker dealer, whether it's a bank or whatever it is, and you've got your own anti-money laundering, well, I'm waving red flags all over the place, right? I mean, I'm just one gigantic red flag right now. You're dealing with Peter Schiff. Explain why you're doing that. Why are you working with this guy? I mean, didn't you read all these stories about how he's you know, dealing drugs and working with terrorists and all this stuff? Who wants to answer that question, right? What people want to say is, oh, I don't work with Peter Schiff. Oh yeah, as soon as we found out about that, we terminated our relationship. We don't have anything to do with that guy, right? They want to cover their own ass. See, that's what I had to do. That's why my bank closed so many accounts. I put the statistics up there. I tweeted them out. You know, since January of 2018, we've closed more accounts than we've opened. And we've turned down more accounts that we've approved. Why are we doing this? We don't want to do this. I mean, if we had a free market, we would accept all these accounts. And we're, we're turning them down because of a flag, some type of high risk relevant to that account. The vast majority of the accounts that we turned down probably did nothing wrong. That's why when people get turned down, sometimes they reach out to me to try, you know, to, to make an exception, which I can never do. So people who don't want to do business with me, most of them understand that I didn't do anything wrong. They're not saying they agree with 60 Minutes or that they believe anything that 60 Minutes said. They just know that regulators will look at what 60 Minutes said and think that therefore Peter Schiff is a higher risk because maybe the allegations are false. Even if there's a slim chance that they're true, that's still better than zero. And so that's what anti-money laundering compliance is all about. It's about eliminating in advance somebody that is at a higher probability to do something wrong because you can never know for sure, right? All you're doing is guessing and you're trying to base your guess based on the information that you have at your disposal. So now a lot of people who are looking at me have all this negative information that wasn't there before that is weighing pretty heavily on the don't work with Peter Schiff. That's why I'm trying to move quickly with my lawsuit 
to try to force, you know, Nine Entertainment, you know, Fairfax Media. Actually, on my video, I mentioned that it was Fairfax Media, but they actually got bought out uh, about a year and a half ago by this uh, Nine Entertainment. So it's Channel Nine that runs uh, 60 Minutes, I guess, or broadcasts it. But um, I want to get these guys to apologize because I think what what a lot of people are, are thinking is that, you know, how can none of this be true? How can just a news organization just make all this stuff up? And that's what they did. They just made all this stuff up. But it's so hard for other people to believe that they would have nothing, yet they would build an entire story based on nothing. Well, they did have something. They had an agenda. And so they built this story around advancing that agenda. And part of that agenda was making a villain out of me. They had to vilify me in order to drive this narrative that Australia needed to be protected from people like me. And so once you understand what they were really trying to do, then it makes sense. But a lot of people don't get that. They just figure, well, they were doing a story on, on me and my bank. And why would they just make up a story? Why would they just say all this stuff about Peter Schiff uh, if it wasn't true? You know, and, and so I want to make sure that enough people see this so that more people actually will hear my side of the story and may even decide that, you know what, despite these allegations, Right? It's so obvious that these allegations are false, that there's no substance at all to anyone, any of them, that it's complete uh, defamation, that maybe they'll feel comfortable working with me. Now, eventually, I'll be able to vindicate myself. I could win a lawsuit if they force me to sue them. It could take a couple of years before I win a defamation lawsuit. Uh, but in the meantime, a lot of damage, irreversible damage, can be done between now and then. I'm hoping that that doesn't happen. I'm doing everything that I can to mitigate that damage. And so far, I'm okay. I mean, so far, uh, you know, not, nothing, nothing fatal has happened, but I have had some problems. So far, they've been isolated to the bank. Uh, so the bank is having to deal with these issues. They haven't really spilled over to my other company yet, although people at my other companies uh, are, are mentioning that, you know, they're, they're looking out. I mean, they're, they're, they're nervous and, you know, they're, they're trying to decide what they're going to do. And, and so hopefully I can get out this information. And a lot of people, you know, say, hey, just I should hide. I should just bury my head in the sand and hope it blows over. Uh, but I don't want to take that course. You know, I don't think that's a wise course and I don't think it'll blow over. I think if I don't refute these false allegations, uh, they're just going to continue with them. They're just going to keep repeating them and they're going to take my silence uh, uh, to mean that they're true, that, hey, you know, he's not saying anything. Obviously, they're true. So I want to defend myself and I want to refute the false allegations when they're made. I don't want to wait uh, for two years uh, to win in court. I want to be out in front of this and I want to do whatever I can to mitigate the damage before it happens, not just try to collect uh, a judgment based on how much damage uh, this defamation causes. I want to do everything I can to prevent the damage from happening in the first place. Thank you.